Would you please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Um, actually, we're going to begin with the last verse of chapter 7, verse 53, but really John chapter 8 is our text for this morning. Um, again, uh, John seven fifty-three, we read, And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The way it's laid out for us in the Gospel of John, as we have it in our text this morning, is that Jesus, earlier in John chapter 7, had taught in the temple area, at the temple courts, during the Feast of Tabernacles. This was his last appearance in Jerusalem at feast time before the following spring when it would be Passover and when he would be there for his own crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus spoke even though the religious officials wanted to shut him up, but he spoke boldly. The idea is, after the great confrontation there on the Temple Mount at the Feast of Tabernacles, everybody went home, Jesus went out and he camped out at the Mount of Olives, probably sleeping under a tree, as often was his custom, and then the next day he came back with great boldness to teach at the Temple Mount. That's what we read there in verse 2. He came again into the temple, and all the people came to him and sat down and taught them. So do you have that picture in your mind? There's Jesus at the Temple Mount, and there are, I don't know how many people, maybe a hundred, maybe a couple hundred gathered around him. The Temple Mount was a large area. There were a lot of people around. Jesus attracted a lot of attention. There's Jesus sitting down, maybe sitting on some steps. And as the other people all around, they're listening to him as he teaches things from the word of God, which are literally just sort of mind-blowing for the people there. They've never heard things like this. They're enthralled by his teaching. He's teaching with great boldness and straightforwardness. Now, before we get into verse 3, I just got to mention something very quickly. Uh, Among New Testament scholars uh, who look at the manuscripts and the manuscript evidence and all of this, there's a bit of controversy about this section of scripture that we're studying this morning. And here's the controversy. Most, what I would call conservative Bible scholars, the ones that I trust and look to, most reliable Bible scholars believe this section we're studying, it belongs in the New Testament. There's not much question about that. There is question about where it should be placed. In a few different manuscripts, it's in different places in the Gospel of John. In one section of manuscripts, it's in the Gospel of Luke. So there's a little bit of debate as to where it belongs But that it belongs in the gospel accounts is not under much debate. And so I'm just going to ignore the rest of the controversy and get into the text as we have it. Look now with me at verse 3. Well, but before I read verse 3, do you have it in your mind? Is the movie running in your mind? There's Jesus sitting at the Temple Mount, teaching, preaching, 100, 200 people around him, listening, hanging on his every word. Now verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? 
So there Jesus is teaching, doing his thing, great boldness. He doesn't care that the religious authorities want to arrest him, want to silence him, want to do everything they can again. It doesn't matter to Jesus. He's a bold man and he's doing his thing. And in the midst of his teaching, the scribes and the Pharisees come bringing a woman. And it's not exaggerating to say they dragged her. She was not a willing participant in this part of the drama. There's probably no place in the world she would rather be other than this particular place. She didn't want to be there. Verse 3 says, they brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Now, friends, why would they bring this woman to Jesus at the Temple Mount as he taught to 100 or 200 people? Why? If they were really concerned with justice in this particular case, wouldn't you kind of put the woman in custody And after Jesus was done teaching, saying, Rabbi, we've got a very thorny issue here to bring up. What do you think we should do? Does anybody have any sense whatsoever that this was a legitimate question where they really wanted to know from an esteemed rabbi what he thought? No. As it's going to say very plainly later on in our text, this was an effort to trap Jesus, to put him on the horns of a dilemma. And what they used to set the trap was this woman, verse 4, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. The religious leaders brought a woman to Jesus who, who, who had shame and humiliation written all over her face. They drag her to Jesus, working their way to the front of the line. They demand his attention. They interrupt his teaching. Jesus, 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 what do we do with this woman? You can picture in your mind, can't you? Her clothes are put on hastily, disheveled. Her hair is a mess. If her eyes are open at all, and they might have been closed just because of the horror of the spectacle to her, she's looking away. She's not making eye contact with anybody. She's bowed down low to the ground. She's held against her will as a prisoner under the custody of the religious police who caught her involved with a man who was not her husband. They caught her in the very act of adultery. Now, friends, because it says that she was caught in the very act of adultery, there is not much doubt that there were prearranged spies at this event. This whole thing was a setup. The, the man she was with was a setup. The spies to witness the event was a setup. The hurried arrest was a setup. The dragging her in the most public way possible to Jesus, in the most public place possible, to the front of the line and interrupting her. It was all a setup. She was the bait for a trap to try to inflict some humiliation, not only upon her, but upon Jesus. Now, why do I say this? Well, one of the reasons I say this is because according to the laws of the Jews at that time, there was a very high standard for evidence in this kind of crime. You know, according to the strictest interpretation of the rules, this woman committed what we would call a capital crime, a crime worthy of death. And so they had very high standards of evidence for this crime. May I read some of those standards of evidence to you? Number one, there had to be two witnesses to the, to the event, to the act. Not just one, but two. And those two witnesses had to match in their testimony exactly. 
If there was a variation in their testimony, forget it, the whole case was thrown out. Two witnesses, they had to match exactly, and I'm sorry for being so bold here. I just got to tell you how it is. They had to see the sexual act take place. It wasn't enough to see a man and a woman leave a room together. Aha, they must have been doing something. No, no, that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And again, forgive my boldness of speech. I just got to tell you how this was. It wasn't enough to see them lying on the same bed together. You couldn't say that. Ah, we caught him in the act of adultery. What the Jewish law said was you had to see the physical act take place and there had to be no other possible interpretation for the movements of their body. That's how strict the standard of evidence was and they had it. This was a setup, pure and simple. So they brought this woman, shaming her and humiliating her in the worst way imaginable, and they bring them to Jesus, and I can just picture in this mind, with sick smiles on their faces, they ask this question to Jesus. Moses, verse 5, in the law commanded that such be stoned, but what do you say? They hoped to trap Jesus on the horns of this dilemma because Jesus seemingly had to make one of two choices here. Here are the two choices that Jesus could make. Jesus could make one choice and say, well, stone her. If that's what the law says, stone her. But, but everybody knew this was a travesty of justice. It was a setup. Everybody knew that, that, that there was something wrong, something smelled badly. And everybody knew this, that if Jesus commanded for her to be stoned, he would also be taking Roman law into his own hand. He could get in a lot of trouble for the Roman officials for commanding the execution of a people because they did not allow the Jews to execute their own criminals. That's the trap if he said stone her. The trap if he says, well, just let her go is, well, then what, don't you care about the law of Moses? Aren't you a righteous man? And I can just picture in my mind the sick smiles on the face of these religious leaders when they think, oh, we've got him. Just like when we tried to bring him uh, the, the, the challenge, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They should have learned from that occasion. You try to trap Jesus, it's going to come back on you. And there they are in their sick confidence. Oh, we've got him. You can't escape this one, Jesus. We're going to expose you. We're going to either show that the Messiah is a cruel man or he doesn't care about the law of God. We got you on this one, Jesus. Now look at what Jesus does in reply. Verse 6. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him, But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. There they are, smirking in front of Jesus. We got you. We put you into a box and there's no way out. You just try to get yourself out of this one, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Friends, Jesus' response is stunning to me. He does something here that I don't notice him doing in any other place in the Gospels. I mean, maybe I'm just forgetting, but it's not prominent in any other place. He did something, I don't remember it says him doing any other place. Verse 6 says that Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. Do you see that? He's standing and he just kind of goes like this. I'm going to go down. I'm going to start making marks. Matter of fact, wrote is sort of a general word. He could have just been doodling. 
We don't really know. Now, when it says that he wrote on the ground with his finger, Bible commentators and scholars have been driving them crazy for 2,000 years. What did Jesus write? (laughs) And I've done the research. I got about nine or ten different explanations. He wrote this. He wrote that. I I could go through them all, but what's the point? Let me tell you something. You know what Jesus wrote? We don't know what he wrote because the Bible doesn't tell us. And if it was important for us to know, it would have told us. So we don't know. But this is what we know. He stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. Friends, I want you to notice the posture of Jesus. He did not react with immediate anger or outrage. He didn't go up to the woman, humiliated before him, go, you stinking adulteress, what are you doing here? He didn't say anything like that. But nor did he challenge the religious leaders. Nor did he say, you horrible hypocrites, get out of here with this. I'm not listening to this. He didn't do that. By the way, there were other times when Jesus did challenge the religious leaders in that way, but not here. Instead, in a way that makes us almost scratch our heads, Jesus does everything he can to lower the tension, to lower the energy. Can you imagine the tension among that crowd? And instead of knocking it up a notch, Jesus lowers it. It's like, let's calm down. Let's let's ease this woman's pain. He stooped down, and friends, stooping down is a low posture. It identifies with the humiliation of the woman. Woman, you are bowed down in sin and humiliation. Let me join you there. Let me be low with you. I will identify with you. I will draw near to you even in the midst of your humiliation. Jesus first identified with the woman in her low condition, and then he began to write on the ground. But I like what it says at the end of verse 6. It says he did this as though he did not hear. As he stooped down and wrote, he acted as if he didn't even hear the accusations against the woman. But perhaps Jesus ignored them because he despised the wicked work of those religious leaders. But friends, it's also just as likely that he ignored them because he was embarrassed for the woman's sake. You poor dear. Let me protect you the best way I can by bowing down with you and stooping down with you at your low place. And then in verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Don't miss the first part of that verse. We're so enthralled by what he said in the second part of the verse that we missed the first part of the verse. Notice the first part of the verse. He says, so they continued asking him. When Jesus stooped down, when he wrote down on the ground, when he acted as if he did not hear the accusers of this woman taken in adultery, the men who brought the woman did not stop asking. They started badgering Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you didn't answer our question. Hey, Jesus, you're not playing according to our game. Come on, Messiah, which is it? Do we stone her to death or do we not? You tell us. They badgered him and badgered him and badgered him. Until Jesus did what? Finally, verse 7, he raised himself up. 
Because now for this moment, he's not going to identify with the woman in her low state. He's going to raise himself up so that he can look at these religious leaders in their eye because he has something piercing to say to them. And what does he say to them with the piercing words of Jesus? Look at it there in verse 7. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Friends, let me first deal with the wrong way to understand what Jesus said. Jesus did not say, did not mean by this, that only someone who is sinlessly perfect can only count another person to sin. In other words, well, let me give you an example from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, when he established churches, he had to confront sin in many different occasions. Could you imagine when Paul is confronting sin in a church, somebody answering back, well, Paul, let him who has never sinned cast the first stone. Well, well, Paul, have you ever sinned? Well, yeah, I've sinned. Well, then you have no place to ever criticize me for my sin. Friends, that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus did not mean that if you have ever once sinned in your life, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, your mere presence here is enough. (laughs) Jesus didn't mean that if you've ever sinned once in your life, you never have the ability to, to talk to somebody else about their sin. That's not what he meant. We understand what he meant by understanding the Jewish legal system and what was required in a crime which required execution. When somebody sinned in a capital offense in the Jewish legal system, The one who initiated the execution, the one who threw the first stone, the one who pulled the switch on the electric chair, the one who pushed the syringe on the lethal injection, that person had to be one of the witnesses who witnessed the crime. It was the witness who threw the first stone. Jesus was basically saying this, I want to know who the witnesses were. And you, the witness, if you can look me in the eye and say that you are without sin in this occasion, then fine, you throw the first stone. Jesus was saying, if you can really tell me that you have done justice here, then go ahead and do it. You see, what he wasn't talking about, he wasn't talking about if you've ever sinned in general. He meant if you are without sin in this particular judicial proceeding, then you go ahead and cast the first stone. But friends, they were not without sin. It was a setup. It was a seduction. And of course, I've avoided the most glaring question right now. I've saved it to now for a little bit of dramatic presentation here. You've already thought of it, though. Where was the man? If you're caught in the very act of adultery, there's a man involved, is there not? Where's the man? The mere fact that the man was missing showed the the horrible injustice of all of this. If they really cared about justice, they would have brought a man and a woman before Jesus to be analyzed or, or to have a judicial sentence passed upon them for the crime. But listen, because they only brought the woman showed that they didn't care anything about justice. They didn't care anything about God's law. What they cared about was attacking Jesus and this woman was just a convenient weapon to do it. And if they could degrade her, if they could shame her, if they could humiliate her in the process, well then so what? Who cares about her? Jesus called him on it. I want to know the witness. I want to know who claimed to see the deed. And I'm going to expose the injustice of it all. 
But there is a principle here. The principle is simply this. There are times when we must speak to the sins of others. Those times are rare. And and usually we think we must speak to the sins of other people much more often than we actually need to. But there are times when it is right, when it is appropriate for us to speak to the sins of other people. My friends, here's the principle. Don't you ever speak to the sins of another person without first reckoning in your heart that you are a sinner as well and someone who has been forgiven. If you ever have to rightly and appropriately speak to the sins of another person, it should be with a broken heart and maybe tears down your face because you recognize that you share common ground with them as someone who desperately needs the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We should never address the sin of other people in a haughty, superior, I'm so great, holier-than-thou attitude. That's a stench in the nostrils of God. And clearly what Jesus says here cautions us against that. Now, friends, what Jesus said was, was so amazing. I mean, don't you admit, this, this is an amazing thing for Jesus to say. So look at what he does next in verse 8. Verse 8 absolutely blows my mind. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. I I can't help but put myself in Jesus' shoes or sandals once again here. And think if it was me, I would have said, sick burn on you guys. You got to answer for that. Come on. But what does Jesus do again? He is so caring to identify with this poor, humiliated woman that instead of like staring these guys down in some display of power, you want something of this? It's nothing like that. Jesus, again, he stoops down and he starts writing on the ground again. Don't you see the love and compassion that he has for this poor woman? Don't you see that almost as quickly as he can, he says, I want to go down to the low place with her once again. He didn't stare down the accusing men in some act of intimidation. He did everything he could in this situation to make it less tense, not more tense. He did not try to change them through intimidation, but rather he identified with the woman in her shame and her humiliation. And look what happened. Verse 9. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, uh, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in their midst. Uh, Jesus says this, stoops down, and they all start leaving. One by one. From oldest to last. We don't know why they left in such an order. Maybe it had something to do with Jesus wrote on the ground. I don't know. But we don't know why. But they left And before you know it, there's the woman, there's Jesus, there's the people who came to hear Jesus teach, but all those scribes and Pharisees who brought the accusation and dragged the woman before Jesus, they are all gone. They've left the scene. They had nothing to say because Jesus exposed the fundamental injustice of what they did, and he called them on it. So now verse 10. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman... He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? 
She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The accusers were gone. The woman stood up. Jesus stood up because there was no need to stoop down anymore. Now, dear woman, I'm gonna speak to you eye to eye. We don't need to stoop down together once again. I'm gonna speak to you eye to eye and I wanna speak to you about your life and first I wanna ask you, where, verse 10, are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Because the accusers all left, there was no one left to condemn the woman. Jesus himself wasn't gonna condemn her. There was nobody to bring the case. It was thrown out of court, it was gone and this is the woman sees, she appreciates this when she says, no one, Lord. Let's face it, guys, this woman was guilty of sin and she was guilty of a great sin But she knew the goodness of having no condemnation because Jesus in his humility draw near to her. Isn't that beautiful? Is that not how Jesus brings salvation to us? That in the midst of our shame, our humiliation, the Son of God stooped down from heaven and drew near to us and identified with us in our sinful condition and would go on to pay the penalty for that. He would take her sin upon himself. And that would be her forgiveness. Then he says to her those words in verse 11, you saw them. Go and sin no more. Jesus sent her away with a call to stop her sin and to continue stopped in regard to that sin. Now go, you're free, but dear woman, sin no more. You know, the first thing that did was a call to what she did, sin. Jesus was real about it. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to soft sell what this woman did. This woman condemned, uh, did, she, 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 she acted out a sin against God, a sin against her family, a sin against her marriage, a, a sin against her own soul. She did this. And Jesus recognized that. And then he told her, I want you to repent and not sin anymore. When he did that, he gave her hope that she could continue a life without sin. I wonder if the first reaction of her heart when Jesus said that was something like this, I can't stop this. And she said, no, you can't. You've met me now. You have a relationship with Messiah. There's a new power. There's a change in your life. There's something different in you because you've come in contact with me. You can go and sin no more. I wouldn't tell you to do it if it was impossible. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but you can do it. You can go and sin no more. And he gave her a word of hope. Look, I'm going to be real honest with you. This woman's shame did not end at the Temple Mount. It was publicly known. Everybody she knew knew that she was the woman caught in adultery. I wonder if her marriage survived. I wonder if she was shamed in her community. But in the midst of the shame that would be heaped upon her for this act, she could say this, the Son of God told me that I am not condemned. The Messiah told me that I could go and sin no more and I can be free of that shame and walk in what the Son of God has given me to walk in. I want to close with a question here. The question is, I want you to think about this. If the woman had never been caught in the act of adultery, do you think she still would have been ashamed? 
Roll that over in your mind just a bit. If she had never been caught in the very act of adultery, do you ever think she would have been ashamed? Friends, you know, the spirit of our age, and it's not unique to our age, it's probably all mankind, but it's just powerful in our age today. People think like this. The sin and the shame isn't in the act, it's in getting caught. But do you realize that because we are human beings made in the image of God, when we disobey God, when we disobey how he has told us to live, there is an inherent shame and guilt attached to the act. Friends, this woman would have had to deal with shame even if she was never caught and dragged to the Temple Mount. And when Jesus said, go and sin no more, he was giving her preventative medicine. I want to prevent future shame in your life. I want you to be able to look in the mirror and no longer say, I'm the woman caught in adultery. I want you to look in the mirror and be able to say, I'm the one to whom Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Isn't that powerful? Do you know what Jesus did not say to the woman? He did not say this, go and don't get caught again. Now, friends, it's not about getting caught. It's about that God cares so deeply that we don't live our life drowning in shame that he does two things for us. Number one, he speaks to us about a preventative for shame. Isn't it better not to get sick at all? Isn't it better to prevent illness, to prevent things if you can? And God says, I want to prevent shame in your life. This is how I tell you to prevent shame. Follow my law follow after me, live a life of obedience. You can't do it perfectly, but as much as you do, you're going to prevent shame in your life because I don't want you to live in that shame. That's what God says. And again, friends, I want to remind you, the shame is not only in getting caught. Getting caught can add shame to it, but there's something in the soul of every man, every woman who is made in the image of God that feels shame when we sin. God first gives us a preventative, but then... After the preventative, we say, Lord, I didn't take your advice. I sinned when you told me not to. Is there anything for me? And he says, yes. Come to the Savior who has stooped down in love to save you. Draw yourself close to Jesus, and Jesus can heal your shame if you broke his law. He comes to you and he says, I can speak to you. I can give you those words. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So friends, let's remember it on both ends. I just feel the burden that there are many lives of those who love God who are deeply weighed down with shame. You drown in it. Isn't that just how the devil works? He seduces you into sin, and then when you do it, he he dumps a dump truck load of shame upon you for it. And he's always whispering into your ear how horrible you are, how terrible you are for the sin you committed. And you almost want to answer, well, you led me into it. Yeah, I know, but now I'm going to torture you because of it. Don't you want to be set free from that? Don't you want to draw close to the one who has stooped down beside you to rescue you from your shame and humiliation? Here is the Son of God to do that right now in your midst. So I think about it. I, I think about it about young women. I think about young Christian women 
who get pregnant through their own sin and unwise choices. And shame drives them to terminate the pregnancy. Shame. That's not going to fix your shame problem, dear woman. Dear, dear sister. I, I know why you're doing it. I'm not saying it doesn't make any sense. But I plead with you. I plead with you. That's not going to fix your shame problem. Your shame problem is only going to be fixed by right now drawing close to Jesus who stooped down to be near to you in your shame and humiliation and wants to raise you up and forgive you and empower you. Please, that's not the only shame-filled circumstance that we need to concern ourselves with. Not in any means. But it's a powerful one, isn't it? And it's an example of how Jesus can do this great work. Can you do it right now? In a few moments, um, a good brother in our church family, David Lean, is going to come up and lead us in communion. I pray that what God does through the bread and the cup will help heal our hearts from shame in the right way before God. Father, I thank you Lord, first of all, I thank you that uh, as human beings, we're capable of shame. We need it, Lord. There are things in our life that we have an appropriate shame about, Lord. We've just done wrong. Lord, it is so easy, it's so common, it's almost universal for shame to become twisted and exaggerated and deeply rooted and used as a weapon against the child of God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us now to simply come before you to draw near to the one who stooped down low beside us in his humiliation, even in his work on the cross. And that in close association with Jesus, that we would right here, right now, have you take away our shame. I got to believe, Lord, that there's a few lives here who desperately need, I know we all need it in general, but Lord, I just trust that there's a few lives that are going to be forever changed by what you spoke to them this morning. Let them receive it full of faith do your work in our midst in Jesus name